Welcome to the Gossip and Glamour podcast, where we cover all things fashion and offer listeners insider access to the Seattle style scene. Join us as we interview Pacific Northwest designers, boutiques, brands, and local creatives. I'm your host, Sydney Mintel. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, fashion friends, and welcome to episode six of the Gossip and Glamour podcast. Today, we sit down with Jenny McCollum of Gray Magazine. Jenny is currently the managing editor at Gray Magazine. Over the course of her career, she's worked for a variety of fashion and lifestyle publications, including Seattle Magazine, Sea California Style Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and Boston Common Magazine. She's also worked for Benefit Cosmetics, Paul Wilmot Communications, and spent time as both public relations coordinator and faculty at Academy of Art University School of Fashion in San Francisco. Today, she'll be sharing her story with us, along with lessons learned along the way. Good morning, Jenny. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being on episode six of the Gossip and Glamour podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to kind of dive into your origin story a little bit. Um, Tell me about you. (laughs) Um, Well, all right. Uh, You know, I, I guess my sort of short background is I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally, so I grew up uh, in New England outside of Boston. Okay. Um, so I've been on the West Coast now for about seven years, and um, I think I'm think I'm pretty converted. I, I love it out here. Uh, but, um, so yeah, you know, grew up and spent childhood, high school, college, uh, all sort of in the New England area. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, reflecting on how that informed you know maybe how I got here or to sort of Mm -hmm. this career path Um, I've always been interested in in the creative arts and the creative community Um, I danced for you know almost my entire life oh yeah let's talk Um, about that was it it was ballet yeah yeah so I think it was just sort of always a natural segue that just sort of reinterpreting kind of the physicality of that interest into Mm -hmm sort of more rhetorical pursuits with Mm -hmm. with writing and and sort of covering the creative community instead of performing within it. Um, Did you ever think you were going to be a professional dancer? um, You know, there was like a really, really brief moment where it sort of was like I was at the crossroads of like, okay, company versus college. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I ended up opting for kind of, you know, it's such an intensely difficult career path and in, in, in leading with you know the potential for injury and it's so competitive and um it felt like at the stage where I would have had to sort of make that kind of decision um that I wanted to have sort of a more diverse experience in, in, in high yep. school and and um I think ultimately knew that I wanted to work in the industry in yeah. a little bit of a different way so sort of yep. honing that focus so so dance sort of became kind of more of an of like an interest or a less formal pursuit mm-hmm. um but certainly you know love living in a city that has you know such a celebrated company like P&B and, right um sort of have never lost you know ties with that community and, mm-hmm. and feel really grateful for that and so um one of the things I think people don't know about you is that you are a twin <laughs> which I I mean that like blew my mind because you're a twin but you're also a Gemini which is like that's like the sign of the twins yeah <laughs> so talk about that a little bit um yeah I think you're exactly right I think you know of course you know sort of astrologically the Gemini is, is sort of the twin there's kind of a split personality yeah I think 
for me, like I've always been like, well, no, yeah, I have a literal other half. <laughs> and his name is Zach. <laughs> um, and he's my twin brother. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it's a relationship and a bond that I think just you, you know, I, I've literally known him before my entire life, right? Yeah. So it, it's something that uh, now every year that we get older, you just sort of appreciate how that connection kind of matures and evolves yeah. and also endures, right? That's um, amazing. Yeah. It's, I mean, we were never, we separated for the first time in college and that was really challenging to have to sort of like describe him to other people mm-hmm. uh, because he literally does feel like my other half. So it's sort of having to find the words to en- encapsulate him and, and sort of who he is to me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that was sort of really, really hard. And, and it's interesting because he's actually in Washington, also Washington, but Washington, D.C. Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of were both, like, um, you know, on opposite sides of the country. But it's funny, actually, we were just um, FaceTiming last night. and uh, But uh, he's the best. Yeah, and we, we're wired very similarly. But the way we've channeled sort of that in our respective career pursuits has it's been, like, really, really interesting. Oh, my see. gosh. That is so cool. Yeah, he's the best. And I have a little brother also. Um, So there's an eight-year age difference between us, um, which is super fun because I'm like 60 seconds apart from my twin, right? Mm -hmm. And then eight years with my little brother, um, who's also still back east. Um, But so it's cool because I have a very different relationship with each of them. Right. Um, But like, can't imagine my life without either one. Gosh, I love that. I love big families, and I have siblings too. So I, you know, definitely like exploring kind of the bonds and just the relationships. And so you're expecting now. That's so exciting. Oh, thank you. Yeah. What are you most looking forward to for motherhood? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, I think the, the whole experience has just been like so humbling and kind of awe inspiring. Uh, and now, like, literally talking to you, like. 10 days away from my due date like I'm just you know I, I'm not sure if there's a singular thing I can say I'm most looking forward to I just I'm, I'm so eager to meet her mm-hmm. and um, to think about that this is someone who's you know both parts my husband and I and right. sort of see what she's going to take from each of us and totally. you know what she's going to show us as much as what I hope to show her exactly um, just feels really special and, oh, that's so yeah. beautiful and I know how much you know how important family is to you so to be able to have this you know chapter in your life is so exciting oh, I'm so happy for you, you. thanks Cindy. well I feel like you've always been like a mama that I look to in terms of like okay how did she do it like it is possible to, to sort of still pursue your professional passions and interests and still totally. be an incredible, you know, pre- incredibly present and caring parent. And um, It's totally possible. It's not easy, but it is definitely possible. <laughs> and I feel like it's, it, you know, like especially having, you know, a family and kind of balancing everything, like it makes your professional pursuits like so much more worthwhile. And, and then especially now that I have London and she's going to turn five in June, which is crazy. And just being able to witness her watching me, you know, pursue all of these things and, and do something that I'm so passionate about. I'm like, oh, like it's important for them to see that modeled so that they know that it's possible and that they can have a life that is truly their own. And so that's something that, you know, really resonates with me. 
Absolutely. Well, and I'm expecting a little girl as well. So certainly getting to see you in London has been like, oh my gosh, like that's what I have to look forward to. Like, yes. It feels like so exciting. And... Little girls are the best. And you know, <laughs> we're celebrating International Women's Day on Friday, March 8th. So I'm just all about girl power this week. Future is female. That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about what you studied in college and kind of how it segued into what you're doing today with the magazine. Yeah, so uh, I majored in English with a concentration in literature and psychology. Um, I went to a a small liberal arts college back east uh, in Connecticut, and um, it was a really deliberate decision. I I knew, you know, sort of from from the get, my, my dad has always been like, Jen, just find out what you love to do, mm-hmm. get really good at it, and then find a way to make a living doing that. And you'll never feel like you have to work. That right? is the best advice. And I mean, it sounds reductive, but I think sort of moving away from dance, I knew that I loved reading and I loved to write, and that one informed the other mm-hmm. in terms of making me a better researcher and reporter and, you know, ultimate sort of voice for the creative community, which is sort of how I saw my career evolving. So mm-hmm. picking a liberal arts uh, curriculum or uh, education, you know, sort of undergraduate experience, I, you know, I feel really grateful for it because it taught you sort of a multidisciplinary way of thinking versus sort of a traditional maybe journalism or comm degree, mm-hmm. um, which is especially with the way the industry has changed so much. Right. Uh, I feel really grateful for it because it's allowed me, I think, to be very nimble in how I approach mm-hmm. um, working in media than, you know, I think so many of the curriculums that may have been sort of more structured to the industry. Um, you know, it's crazy. Five years ago, even three years ago, um, you know, it's, it's just so different now. It's so different. And actually, I think that, it, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot too, especially because, you know, working in PR, but then, you know, spending a lot of time working with like bloggers and influencers. So let me ask you this, because this is something that I wrote in my notes too. You know, like how do you um, like approach the process of writing a piece or thinking about, you know, kind of how you're going to conceptualize like a story? Uh, you know, I think it really, it's depended on the publication that I'm writing for, mm-hmm. right? I mean, obviously the stories that I was sourcing and vetting for Bazaar, you know, the country's oldest fashion book versus a publication like Grey, which is, right. you know, eight years young and, and really sort of has found its footing, I think, in terms of being a real platform for a regional creative community. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's very different, right? So totally. I think it's understanding, um, you know, the voice and the message and the mission of the publication, you know, the publication that you're writing for first, right? And then from there, using that lens to sort of evaluate the various subjects that are in your orbit, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and then part of it is also just kind of your personal intuition, right? That totally. you know, that a part of this person's story resonates with you, and um, you know, that's the part of this that feels really awesome, you know, sort of AWE in terms of there are oftentimes that I'm, I've been the first person or, you know, the magazine I'm writing for has been the first publication to sort of break the news about an emerging creative or designer and being charged with, with that legacy in print, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's going to be in pages forever. Um, you know, that, that's really powerful and and, and really something that feels incredible to, to be a part of. Right. 
So what were you like in college? Were you like a bookworm? Were you kind of out around town? I don't know. <laughs> yes. No. Like, I mean, I think still like total, like still complete nerd. Um, <laughs> like I wrote for the school newspaper and I tutored in the writing center. Um, you know, I, if you saw my dorm room, like there was just stacks of books everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, I, I you know, really, I was so grateful for the environment that I went to school in because it really was an intimate community where, mm-hmm. um, you, you really could just sort of dive into whatever your interest was. And, and because it's a small school, at the time, it was only 1800 undergrads. So wow. you could have relationships with faculty and with professors mm-hmm. and who you know were so inspiring and, and, and really did want to help you explore whatever it was you were passionate about so yes it was always buried in in pages of some kind yeah. um, whether it was getting the most recent edition of the newspaper out um you know or helping to sort of peer edit mm-hmm. uh you know a senior thesis whatever it was there was just sort of um there was always pages everywhere <laughs> I love it. I feel like I had that same experience, except it was all fashion magazines and all, like, my husband still jokes that I like to cut and paste, literally with, like, glue sticks and scissors oh, yeah. that are everywhere and doing mood boards. And, yeah, that was, like, my favorite part. Oh, well, that, it's so funny that you're saying that. I would actually, so I would wallpaper my dorm room uh, with the September and March fashion books. Yes. Because some of these advertorials, you know, they were, you know, these brands were commissioning the best photographers and mm-hmm. models and um so my roommate who I lived with all four years would always joke because the first like several weeks of classes there was just tear sheets mm-hmm. all over my floor yep. and you know sort of as I was like collaging what would be you know the walls of my room for the right. next you know nine months I love I love that though. I used to do that at my house, and my mom would just be like, "Oh my god, there's like, <laughs> you know, just like tape everywhere." But I just loved the visuals, and I just always felt like it was so inspiring. And I loved to be able to just kind of look at something and get some inspiration for how I'm gonna style an outfit or yeah. do my makeup. Like I, yeah, I just love that. I mean, it was art, and I'm like, I'm a college kid, right? I can't afford any art, but right. this was these were images that were aspirational and beautiful and. Um, so yeah, being able to sort of surround myself with that, that was just sort of my little like, you know, environment. (laughs) I love it. So let's talk about like your first gig. Yeah. So it's actually really funny. My first, I would say sort of opportunity in journalism was actually, um, I, uh, was a beat reporter for the Hartford Current. I sort of went to college in Connecticut. Oh, that's right. And so there weren't, you know, sort of style books headquartered in, in Hartford, um, but I knew I needed clips, uh, and the Hartford Current is actually the country's oldest continuously published newspaper, oh. so not the oldest newspaper, but the oldest uh, newsprint publication that's never sort of ceased production. Got it. Uh, and yeah, I had a local beat, and my desk was uh, in the, the room where all the sports editors were, so there were all of these like TVs broadcasting, you know, all of like the UConn basketball games, and there was like me who like, you know, would sort of come in in, in my heels with my notebook and sort of all of these like you know like vetted sports writers are kind of like, are you lost? Like what is <laughs> happening right now? And you know, so and you know the beats weren't fashion, so it was writing about you know, 
oh, the town of Avon got two new ambulances and, you know, from a mysterious donor. And, you know, it was <laughs> hyper-local regional reporting. Um, but I have to tell you, you know, when you work for a newspaper, your turnaround time, and this is what I was doing this during undergrad, so mm-hmm. I would go to the newspaper, you know, like two days a week. Um, but your, your deadline is so quick. Um, and there really, at the time, there wasn't you know any kind of research or, or copy support, so you're fact checking your own work. So you had to make sure you were getting people's names right when you were you know in the field, uh, because there was no one who was gonna be you know sort of following up with you. Um, and I have to tell you, every single job interview I've ever had, when they see that I have had newspaper experience, they've been like, "Oh, that's so great," because um, it really was the best education I could have gotten mm-hmm. um, as far as pursuing a career in journalism. So, how did you segue kind of that job after graduation into kind of your first like big fashion gig? Yeah. So, uh, you know, thankfully because of those clips uh, in the summers, I just submitted my resume to any sort of lifestyle book, which at the time I would go back to Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, so truly just hoping that any editor would, you know, take a meeting with me. Right. Um, and, you know, pre- presented it as sort of just, would you take a look at my work? Um, I think informational interviews continue to be um, sort of the lifeblood of my career, right? Mm-hmm. Because when I'm interviewing a subject, I'm, ga- I'm gathering information about their story, right? right. But certainly, um, you know, some of the best job opportunities I've ever had have come out of, you know, just meeting someone who I've found inspiring for coffee, getting mm-hmm. their story, um, and not necessarily finding having a role I was applying for, just right. sort of trying to learn more about them. Mm-hmm. But so, to to answer your your question though, so I had one of those meetings with. Um, the uh, style editor, then style editor of Boston Common Magazine, which was Niche Media's luxury lifestyle book, still it's still around, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and was lucky enough to be hired for an internship. So, at, you know, that summer, uh, so I think I was going into my junior year was when I sort of started lining those up kind of okay. more formally. Um, and it was one of those opportunities where, uh, you know, just absolutely loved being a part of the team did everything I could to make myself invaluable and right. just absorb every assignment, responsibility that I could. Uh, continued to write for the magazine even when I went back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go home on weekends sometimes to help with event production for things that were happening. Oh, cool. Um, and it was the kind of thing where when I graduated, you know, I had still had that relationship with that with those editors. And mm-hmm. what started off as it turned out, it turned out I graduated the spring of 20, 2008 and that upcoming fall the magazine was going to put together their first ever style issue and they were like we need extra help mm-hmm. you know could we sort of hire you on contract to sort of help just execute this book and that contract position sort of evolved into a full my full you know first full-time job as a style assistant for the magazine that's amazing and don't you feel like everything kind of happens for a reason it's like you're given this opportunity and then you kind of have this decision of like how am I going to show up how am I going to you know just make myself useful and learn everything that I can yeah and then that you know parlays into this contract role into a position what are the biggest lessons that you learned kind of during that period of like intern to employee yeah, I mean, I think it's it just say yes to everything. You have no idea. And, and, and really, sort of what we were saying before, do not be afraid to put yourself out there in terms of just asking to speak with 
you know, across any industry, right. you know, not necessarily just editors, but any individual associate professional whose track you find inspiring mm-hmm. or, or hope to emulate. Um, I think, I think people love talking about themselves. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I've always found, um, it's very rare for someone who isn't willing to sort of take a half an hour to sort of say, this is how I got to where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, at my senior year of college, uh, I started setting up those kind of meetings, um, you know, because Connecticut was sort of the midpoint between Boston and New York. So literally, it felt like every weekend I was taking the Greyhound bus either down to Manhattan or up to Boston. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was just to meet with these editors for, you know, at a Starbucks for right. half an hour, you know, just to sort of be like, this is me. How did you get to do what you yeah. were doing? And one of those meetings for me in New York. Um, ended up being with Anna Maria Wilson, uh, who was um, the executive fashion and features director at Bazaar. This is now over 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there was no role I was applying for. There was, uh, you know, I was still in college, um, right. but just wanted to meet with her and sort of understand her trajectory and, mm-hmm. and, and her. So she's still, I think, one of the most elegant women in the industry uh, and a phenomenal writer. And fast forward, then almost two years later, when from the date of our meeting, I saw the beauty assistant role bizarre advertised on you know a, a, a media bistro type website. Right. Yeah. And I circled back with her and said, "You may not remember me, um, but you know we met in you know fall two thousand seven and wasn't sure if you knew any more about this role. And it was because I had had that informational meeting, sort of mm-hmm. without hope or agenda, to almost two years prior, that she was able to sort of." help move my resume along and, and my gosh, know, I love that. that role. I love that. That is <laughs> like my favorite story because I think so many people, they just don't think about these micro moments or they're very aggressive in how they're pursuing people. If you know, whether it's at a company that they're working you know, or want to work for, or they're submitting, you know, an application, but really haven't done any work on the company or, you know, kind of the founders. And so, um, what tips do you have for people who are kind of wanting to source some informational interviews? Like what kind of prep did you do? I I mean, I think, and this is universal, whether it's an informational interview or whether you certainly am, as you know, in your line of work, um, you know, in order to sort of successfully place your clients, you know, with the kind of coverage, um, it's, it's, it's really do your research and know your references. Um, uh, I think especially in, in the creative industry, there can just sort of sometimes be a, a, you know, a superficial mode of operating in terms of, well, I love fashion. So I just want to talk to anyone associated with the magazine or with that world. Um, and I think really honing in terms of, okay, who are the writers, the stylists, Mm -hmm. you know, that you aspire to work with? What is it about their aesthetic or their taste level that resonates with you? Right. Um, Really understanding who might be the best person, you know, who's the best person to offer very targeted insights. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in the same way as an editor now when I get pitched, it's very obvious if the publicist or the rep hasn't ever read Grey. Okay, so you spent time at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. Did I get the title right? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, and you were there as both faculty, and then you were also did some public relations and social media coordinating. What was that experience like for you? I mean, I was thrilled to have the opportunity that I, I did with the university. So the fashion school at the Academy of Art University is, is um, directed by Simon Unglis, okay. who was actually McQueen's roommate at Central St. Martin's. Oh my gosh. Uh, and was the textile designer for the first like 10 collections for the house. I mean, they were wow. 
um, you know, sort of schoolmates, yeah. best friends, contemporaries, and um, so to be able to study under, you know, to, to work in an environment that was under his vision was just so, so special. Mm -hmm. um, and the school that, that, the fashion school actually predates any other U.S. fashion school for showing at New York Fashion Week. So mm -hmm. one of the very unique aspects of the, the master's program there is the students would show in the industry, and this was before Parsons was doing it, before FIT, oh the Academy gosh. of Art University was actually the first. So uh, it's, it's, it was really, really just a phenomenal opportunity. And, and you're right, the original role was working in the PR office. Mm -hmm. um, and I had moved to San Francisco, uh, you know, sort of taking a bit of a, a, a career shift, leaving New York, leaving mm -hmm. sort of the undisputed hub of the industry. And right. So uh, to be connected with an organization that had still sort of such deep ties and mm -hmm. offered such an incredible platform for emerging designers yes. was incredible. Um, but I think what ended up being you know, the most rewarding part of my experience there was uh, one day one of the instructors called in sick for what, what at the time was an intro to fashion PR course. And um, the head of the department sort of came into our office and was like, you know, Gabriel's out sick, can anyone pinch hit for this class? Like, here's, here's the notes, like all you need to do is sort of walk students through the lecture and the slideshow. And um, so I was like, oh, well, okay, I'm happy to, to, to do that. Um, and uh, during that time, you know, sort of got access to the curriculum and was looking it over and, uh, you know, I had most recently been working in PR and marketing at that point in New York mm -hmm. uh, prior to moving, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, sort of what we were talking about before, the industry is evolving and changing so quickly. Right. You know, there needs to be a component of this curriculum that talks about pitching influencers for social media. There mm -hmm. needs to be, you know, some more formalized rhetorical, you know, sort of seeing like, okay, just given the experience that even I had had, right. that there were changes that I could help make so fast forward I met with the head of the department afterwards and sort of said hey I have some ideas for how this course might be able to be evolved mm -hmm. next fall you know would love to sort of talk with you about those long story short um for you know what ended up being more than two years I ended up developing an intro to fashion writing and PR class um, That's amazing. that and totally loved it and um ultimately ended up sort of switch, switch, switching my focus to teaching for, you know, left my role in the PR office and ended up teaching as an instructor um, at, the, at the school for, for like two years. And I would just, have loved to take that course. Like oh. That would have been like amazing. <laughs> and how lucky are those students to hear from you? Like what were the things that you felt like the students, you know, had a hard time kind of grasping like conceptually? I think, uh, you know, so much as you know about being an effective publicist is just having you know, really sound communication skills mm -hmm. and there was sort of no core it sounds crazy but sort of core curriculum of okay this is how you write a press release this is mm -hmm. how you channel a client's voice um, this is how you pitch long lead versus short lead uh, you know these are, these are sort of you know the pros and cons of putting together you know uh, you know, a blogger influencer event versus an event for, you know, all the direct beauty directors at Hearst or Conde Nast. Right. You know, that you're going to approach these two communities a little differently. Totally. Um, and what sort of that press means for your client and, mm -hmm. you know, tracking metrics and impressions. Um, and then there were some students who were in my class uh, who um, 
you know, were aspiring, were taking it because they were aspiring designers and wanted to build their own brand. So mm-hmm. sort of understanding the business of fashion. Yes. Um, and just getting a sense of kind of industry production cycles and mm-hmm. really just sort of talking them through the essentials of, yes, what on sort of at its face presents as a sort of very glamorous creative world, um, but very much requires merchandising skills, business totally. acumen, um, and sort of helping them wrap their heads around, you know, kind of what sort of the more traditional, you know, corporate strategies would be for, right. for launching their brand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that sort of was all encapsulated in, in How that course. cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would have been incredible. I feel like more students would benefit from having that. And likewise, a lot of independent designers would benefit from having that information. And, you know, because so many of them are just really in the weeds of the creative process. And, you know, they also need to learn how to run a successful business. And so much of that is how are you going to communicate? What's the marketing strategy? And that, of course, overlaps into PR and, you know, how you're going to, you know, maintain a presence on social media. Completely. Well, you, I'm sure you know with some of your clients, they're so talented. Right. Um, but but sort of the last piece is always like, okay, well, well, how do I get the word out effectively? How mm-hmm. am I targeting the influencers, the editors, the, the, the customer base that right. I need to sustain what I'm doing? And that's why they, you know, the ones who are very smart bring you on, you know? <laughs> um, but so I think that was sort of felt... Uh, really meaningful for me that it was sort of talking to students who were going to be on both sides of the desk, whether mm-hmm. they were going to eventually launch their own companies. It was hope, hopefully giving them the tools to sort of help navigate fashion as a business. Right. And for those who were going to be charged with telling their story or representing them, mm-hmm. you know, teaching them a way, ways to do that authentic, authentically and effectively. Right. Um, so, and, and I loved working with students. I mean, just yes. it was... Um, you know, they taught me so much as well. Right. Uh, and, you know, and, and in some cases, I wasn't that much older than them, right? Mm-hmm. So that was, like, kind of hysterical to sort of <laughs> be like, oh, my gosh, you know, like, at the time, you know, like, I'm 28 and they're, like, 18. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was just a really, really fascinating dynamic and relationships. And I'm still in touch with so many of them who have taught because, you know, they've continued to keep me in the loop about where they've landed and right. what they're doing. and. Oh my gosh, um, it's just cool. really cool. So one of the things we both have in common is that we both worked for Benefit Cosmetics. You had the opportunity to support both the founders of the company and you got involved on the product marketing side. What was that like? I mean, it was, I think, truly one of the most defining career experiences sort of in the arc of me being in this industry. Um, as you said, the role supported both Jean and Jane Ford, um, mm-hmm. who it feels sort of surreal to be talking about now, um, given uh, Jean's passing a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. but to so intimately be shadowing women who, who really were such renegades and did something mm-hmm. so different in the luxury beauty market that totally. um, you know, has become this you know, cult brand as an understatement. Uh, and then the part of my role, um, because the company did know that I had a copy background, you know, I was able to be involved with helping to, uh, you know, when people talk about, oh, I wonder how they come up with like, these crazy names for right. lipstick and polish. Like, that was me in a Amazing. room with the copywriters and Jean and Jane, and we were all just throwing out ideas and, and figuring out. One of the last launches I worked on um, was uh, their reel, the, oh, the mascara that's yeah. found to be... Uh, like now. a cult favorite. Yeah, which is so incredible because, I mean, if I could tell you sort of how many like 
test tubes and formulations I had at my desk, you know, like I was always streaked in black during that right. time. Um, so it's, it's so surreal. Uh, but I think I couldn't have asked for a better education in terms of truly learning a brand's voice, as mm-hmm. you know. And their voice um, was so defined. I mean, and that is yes. because of you, which is amazing. But it's like it became the thing that people like knew about Benefit. Yeah, well, it was one, really one of the first brands to sort of um, talk to women on a very personal level about mm-hmm. beauty that you, whether you were going to one of their brow bars or, yep. you know, looking at just sort of the cheeky names of one of their products on Gondola and Sephora right. that you felt like you were sort of engaging with a gal pal, you know, mm-hmm. um, and as a writer, you know, sort of understanding that this was how the brand needed to connect with their customer and needed to be spoken about. Right. It was just such an education of how do you assume those different voices and those identities mm-hmm. uh, effectively. And then Jean and Jane had this real true irreverence for beauty, um, you know, benefits owned by LVMH. Mm-hmm. So being a part of a, a luxury beauty, you know, fashion and beauty conglomerate like that, um, but still having this, this you know, sort of, um, the, the tagline of the brand is laughter is the best cosmetic. And that really did permeate every element of their creative process. Mm-hmm. And so to sort of be in the room, uh, you know, with these, with these two women who created this, Line you know out of their kitchen in San Francisco in like the seventies. Like it's so crazy. It was amazing. The it was brand growth. Amazing. I mean, I've been to a Benefit cosmetic store like even in London, you know, and just it's so cute and it's very. I mean, they do such a great job just with the branding and just being really cohesive with, mm-hmm. you know, the product side, but then also like how it's going to be merchandised and the color story and, oh, you know, yeah. just even like the personalities that they have working for the brand. I mean, it was across the board. I mean, to this day, it's still like burned into my brain when you spoke about a Benefit customer you know, or Benababe, you know, she was a gal, not a girl. Right. Like, even those kind of, like, nuances and subtleties, mm-hmm. like, it all informed this feeling that the brand wanted to create with its products and with its experience. And right. so there truly was sort of no better education I could have received um, than the time that I spent there. So was it a small team that you worked on? Yeah. I mean, the copy team, uh, I sort of straddled both teams. So when I wasn't supporting... Uh, Jean and Jane, I was kind of involved with marketing and um, and the copy team. The copy team was at the time only like four wow. writers, uh, so yeah, really small. Marketing was obviously a little bit more robust, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it, I mean, it was it was it was phenomenal. It was it was a really wonderful experience, and uh, you know, I really couldn't have asked for, especially living in again in, the, in, in San Francisco, right. Um, you know, to be a part of a sort of a heritage brand for the Bay Area, mm-hmm. but that has grown to sort of this global beauty presence. Yes. Um, it, was, it was really special. So what do you feel like were your big takeaways from that experience? Oh my gosh. Um, you didn't come here for easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, the biggest takeaway was, for me, I think, was truly, uh, there's no other... other brand place I've worked for that understood their customer and sort of kept them first and foremost Mm -hmm. at the top of everything they did more than benefit Mm -hmm. um and seeing what that was able to accomplish you know certainly for for Jean and Jane and then ultimately when the brand was acquired by LVMA you know that that especially in an industry like beauty which is so layered and so new I would argue in almost in some ways more than fashion right because 
when you think about the science and psychology of products that totally make women look a certain the way they want to feel versus mm-hmm. the clothes you know that sort of do things to their body versus the clothes that like enshroud that body mm-hmm. um it's it's just such a multi-dimensional industry right. and discipline and to be a part of a brand that understood that and all of those various levels mm-hmm. so profoundly and translated them still with such a uniform voice and messaging um, that was just incredible. What were your favorite products from the line? Um, I mean, I still like face plant into Hula, their bronzer, yes. every single morning of yep. my life <laughs> and always will. <laughs> um, uh, so I think that's always been a just will always be a a standard in my makeup bag Mm -hmm. uh um I still use their real um definitely you know was still sort of like milking like the test formulation tubes that I had totally after I left um well I remember when um Benefit launched Bad Gal Lash and so many people who had been buying Dior show like mm -hmm. quickly converted to Bad Gal Lash because it wasn't as wet and so it didn't make their lashes kind of droop down once you applied it right and I still use it I just think you know for $18 it gets such a great value for a mascara like that that's great to hear totally (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I mean they just truly I think you know I will always love the box of powders. I just think that, like, as a concept, is just, again, sort of, a, it's, a, it's a really finely formulated product, like with Hula, like, mm-hmm. that there is no shimmer, that you do sort of get that kind of true, amazing, you know, just sort of, like, russet tone after yes. you've been on the beach all day. But the delivery mechanism is, you know, right. sort of so clever and contained. And mm-hmm. um, so I think, for me, like, the, those will always sort of be the iconic benefit product. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, first of all, what brought you to Seattle? Um, A number of factors, really. uh, You know, I think uh, the most prominent being my my husband's from here. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's been a city that I've come to as as a visitor for a while. Um, So now it feels kind of amazing to be a a proper resident. Right. Uh, But at the time, we were living in San Francisco uh, and my husband works in tech and had actually um, sold his uh, his first company. He works in startups. And uh, so we were sort of talking about, like, okay, well, what's what's next for us? You know, mm-hmm. do we want to stay in California? Um, and we kind of distilled that we wanted wherever that next place to be, to be a place that had, you know, a burgeoning tech scene so he could build his next company. Right. That had a thriving creative community for me to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of having the added bonus of having family here. Right. Uh, it kind of, you know, seemed, you know, it, it, it seemed like a no-brainer. And I uh, was so, so grateful that I, you know, sort of started putting, you know, again, networking Right. reaching out to you know the various style editors and editorial directors at the lifestyle books up here mm-hmm. sort of saying here's my background like if you need a freelancer I'm happy to sort of help string for you guys not mm-hmm. thinking that I, there'd be any full-time jobs you know right. in, in I'd already gone from Manhattan to San Francisco <laughs> so that was already you know a condensed style and design market right, right. let alone San Francisco to Seattle I was like I had no expectations and um you know got an email back from uh, Rachel, the editorial director of Seattle Magazine, said, your timing's perfect. You know, our style editor just actually gave her notice. Could I tell you more about the role? Um, so was incredibly flattered because sort of sight unseen, right. ultimately this 50-plus-year-old city book hired me to, to join as their style and design editor mm-hmm. um, and you know, to essentially to be an authority on a city 
that I'd never lived it. Right. <laughs> um, so that was incredibly intimidating. Uh, but again, sort of I felt like a real responsibility to do justice to the communities that I was supposed to be covering and given the legacy that Seattle Magazine has in this city. Mm-hmm. So moved up here in the spring of 2015 and as you know, just, I mean, completely dived into the, the various creative communities here, just right. saying yes to every meeting, every event, just being out and in, in, involved as much as I could mm-hmm. to sort of educate myself about who were the local shop owners here, who right. were the designers that were based here, you know, up through, okay, understanding what kind of a heritage and presence, you know, brands like Nordstrom has here. Definitely. Um, and really just did my best to sort of steep uh, in all of that so I could be sort of the best advocate and reporter that I could be. So what were your like initial thoughts about the market when you came here and kind of started exploring the scene and the shops and meeting people? Like first impressions? Um, I, you know, I think first impressions were, I, you know, like I said, I had no expectations. Right. You know, I think living from outside of the, you know, never having really spent a ton of time in the region, I sort of had the same superficial understanding of, you know, what Pacific Northwest style and the environment sort of dictates that that look like right Mm -hmm. um but coming here what I realized is um yes while while the industry may not be here right like the houses the production centers the manufacturing facilities those are not here but there is a very savvy consumer here Mm -hmm. and I think it's a really exciting time certainly for the style and creative communities in Seattle because I think the world is kind of waking up to the innovation that is here with all that's been happening across different industries. Totally. Um, and it feels very similar to sort of what what happened with the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and like the right. early aughts that, you know, sort of when you have an economic catalyst like the tech innovation innovators happen in a city, it draws a diverse, more cosmopolitan, more global demographic and totally. that influences all industries, including the arts and the creative ones. And mm-hmm. so that's been, even in the four years now that I've been here, just seeing sort of everything from the, the fact that Sam curated, you know, its first ever sartorial, exclusively sartorial focused exhibit with the Saint Laurent show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like that wouldn't have happened a few right. years ago. So that just sort of speaks to that there is an, an engaging consumer and creative here um, mm-hmm. that's really excited about fashion in the same, you know, in, in an equally enthusiastic way as someone who lives in New York or London or Paris and mm-hmm. so that's who I sort of hope to to write to and 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 you know offer them you know that kind of insight and experience right. with the stories I put together and you do such a beautiful job too of just telling the stories and really showcasing what makes you know just the fashion and also the design scene so unique because this is you know, I mean, I'm partial, of course, but it, this is a very unique market. Like the way that we approach things, the way that we even just kind of celebrate fashion and design here is it's different. It, it, it's completely true. And, and I think something that surprised me when we've talked about this is that um, there are sort of so many subsets of the style community right. here. And I think if, if, if actually if there was just sort of one thing that I wish um, you know, could be a bit more cohesive would be sort of bringing those various communities together. Because right. There is such a actually like a rich presence here of style influencers and designers and creatives and I think you know with what you, you the events and the clients you work you do such a great job of trying to bring everyone together right. um, because uh, I 
think there is more and more emerging, you know, sort of a singular vision or definition of what Pacific Northwest fashion looks like. Right. Um, and it is one that's sophisticated, that puts an emphasis on sort of fewer, better mm-hmm. quality goods. Right. Um, that is sensitive to trends, but isn't defined by them. Exactly. Um, and I, I think, you know, the more that that can be showcased, it's, it's so important. Exactly. Well, and I think the other unique thing is that, you know, we're different than other markets because we don't have like one shopping row. Like you really have to kind of be in the know yes. to know where it is that you're going to shop, whether it's in Ballard or Capitol Hill or maybe you're downtown or, and so I think that that's the other thing too, is just being able to showcase all the different areas and, and, you know, places that you can shop in the city and how different they are from one another. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I would have brands when I was in San Francisco approach me all the time in terms of, you know, saying you know, that they, they had to be on Fillmore Street or they had to be in Hayes Valley. Right. Or, or, or certainly in New York, you know, you have Soho, you have Fifth Avenue. And, totally. Um, you know, sort of all the different connotations of what those retail centers represent and for mm-hmm. who that customer is, who that, who that store owner or, sh- or brand is. Right. And you're right, in Seattle, there isn't sort of that concentration, mm-hmm. uh, sort of concentrated zip code, I should say, or area. Exactly. Um, so in, in some ways, it's amazing because every neighborhood has something to discover here, which Definitely. feels very cool. Um, but you're right, it just sort of speaks to, it makes, I think, both of our jobs that much more important in terms mm-hmm. of bringing together those communities because there's no literal sort of brick and mortar exactly. center that happens I think. Right and then I think there was also you know just the misconception that people here you know don't really like fashion or we don't have kind of the fashion customer and I think to your point there are you know we're just recruiting and attracting global talent from around the world and they appreciate fashion and so they you know move here get relocated to work for you know Microsoft or Amazon or Expedia and then they kind of look around and they're like okay great like now where do I shop and so you know just being able to connect them to the great stores that we have in the city whether it's Baby and Co or Toto Kayo or you know other places that would be relevant for them yeah well and it's not just the new I mean you know like Jill at Baby and Co you know has been involved with you know, defining Seattle style scene since the 70s. Right. You know, that was one of the first shops to carry Comme de Garcon, Yoji Yamamoto. Like, that started on that corner outside my so window. crazy. You know? Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's this amazing time where there are creatives who have been here who mm-hmm. have sort of the arc of history and understanding how the Seattle style consumer has evolved. 100%. And that, you know, there's also sort of this new influx of, of, of perspective and talent that's coming in just consumer demand in right. terms of that they they want access to goods whether they're made here or whether they're brought you know whether it's what they're seeing in collections totally you know, in global fashion capitals and wanting to have access to that here absolutely um so it's a really cool time to be covering this scene what do you think is missing from the fashion and design scene in the pacific northwest um you know, I think it was what we were speaking to earlier, that sense of cohesion mm-hmm. that, you know, which I think to your point is driven partially because there is, isn't sort of a centralized shopping district or retail right. hub. Um, but, you know, what I would love to see is, you know, to have professionals like you who continue to advocate to bring these communities together, whether it's the blogger or style influencer communities, right. whether it's, you know, uh, you know, sort of like shop and dine or retail brick and mortar mm-hmm. initiatives. Um, but as an editor, I know, you know, I've gotten, the first year I was here, I think I got invited to like what felt like four or five different Seattle fashion weeks. And right. I was like, hold on, <laughs> like, like, how can there be more than one? <laughs> um, and each one of those, you know, had 
various brands with varying degrees of aesthetics and messages and points of view right. and there's room for everyone but totally. I think if this community is going to be taken seriously mm-hmm. um, outside of this region and right. hold its own on a national or global stage there does need to be a unity there and I don't mm-hmm. think those various you know, sort of the various organizations and um, groups here have sort of really figured out mm-hmm. how to all collaborate together to achieve that. Totally. I think we definitely need more of that collaboration piece. And then I think the other thing that's really unique is like, how can we also kind of merge everything that's happening with the fashion community and all of the tech components that could be supporting some of those fashion initiatives? And then also, you know, just the traditional like design community, like how can the three of us kind of come together and really leverage some of those resources? I think that that could be really interesting to explore in the next couple couple of years absolutely um you know i think we have especially from a design perspective and part of what drew me so much to the role at gray being able to cover the design community here regionally Mm -hmm. um as we talked about i grew up in new england and so when you live in a place um like where i spent my childhood where the climate dictates so much of what the like like the architecture and the construction has to be because you you have to have pitch roofs to sloth ops and you know, all I saw were these colonial houses right. you know, on every block growing up versus moving here yeah. where you're in such a temperate environment that creatives can really do anything mm-hmm. in terms of building construction because there's no sort of environmental constraints they're having to contend with. Right. That's a really freeing perspective and really unique and one that can you know, sort of be universally um you know, understood and attractive, and, and, and that's something to that I think anyone reading Gray, you know, Gray's distributed internationally across North America can can look to and appreciate that there isn't sort of a Pacific Northwest aesthetic. Right. I think when it comes to what you're seeing, some of the architects and designers doing here and now, um, because they do sort of have this essentially unbridled creativity that starts with the environment they're they're working in. Totally. So. Um, in 2017, Gray Magazine introduced the Gray Awards. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. I mean, it's an initiative that we're so thrilled to have been able to put together and um, offer a sort of an extension of the platform that our pages give. Um, you know, we're so spoiled that we get to see the incredible work of this region right. every day in our in what we do, and we had been approached by various members of the design community for years that. You know, because you guys see everything, you do know what's best or different or innovative. Right. And, you know, how, how could you further celebrate that? So, with the award, we put together a global panel of design judges. So, it's not us evaluating the work anymore. It's truly getting, you know, our, in our inaugural year, Philippe Stark sort of helmed uh, that group, which was absolutely incredible that you know, not overstating it, probably the most celebrated designer in contemporary in, in the contemporary industry mm-hmm. um, wanted to be a part of at the time what was, you know, a six year old design books right. first ever design awards. And as a policy he doesn't usually do sort of inaugural runs. Um, you know, that was just so incredible. Um, Definitely. that we're getting studios that maybe have only, you know, a dozen designers and creatives and their work was presented in front of Philippe Stark. Um, I mean, that is essentially what, you know, our mission is as a magazine, you know, Mm -hmm. being able to share what's happening in in the creative communities of this region with the world. And so the Grey Awards are sort of the ultimate example of that.
Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Sydney Mintel, and you've been listening to the Gossip and Glamour podcast. See you next time.